Today we will be in Numbers chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people, because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is around us, as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. The word of the Lord. Right. Well, good morning. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastoral interns here, as Eric mentioned. And yeah, this is my first sermon, so thanks for letting me preach. When I was in undergrad, I was a music major, and one of the things we learned in our music history class was this concept of a leitmotif. And a leitmotif is essentially a recurring melodic theme that happens in a piece of music that gets And so, this actually happens in our passage today, that the Hebrew writers had this similar concept where they would spin a theme over and over again throughout their scriptures, and that would actually help us to look back and see what we can learn from where those themes pop up over and over again. And so I think there are two things we can learn. So one is that we're going to become better readers of our Bibles today by one, looking at the leitmotif. And two, I think by doing that, we can learn at least three things, and these will be our outline points. And one of those things is that we're in a bigger story. We are in a bigger story that God is telling. Two, that there's evil in that story. Three, that God turns curses into blessings. So one, there's, there's a bigger story. We are in a bigger story. Two, there's evil in that story, and that God turns curses into blessings. So remember, in this passage, we've been coming up to, uh, through the book of Numbers, we've been traveling through the desert in the wilderness, and re- Israel has been rebelling over and over again, right? And at this point in the story, we get kind of a pause in the narrative, and we get this kind of a, it's kind of like a zoom out. If you think about it in like a movie, the, the camera is panning out, and we get this bigger picture. And now we're invited to see that Israel is down in the plains of Moab, and now we're on this other, we're in this other area that we can see Israel, and we're seeing that not only is God at work in the camp, God's also at work outside of the camp. And what does that help us to see? Well, remember, we're trying to be good readers here. And so one of the ways we have to remember uh, as we read the Bible is that the stories written in the Bible were written not to us, like we were not the audience of the author when he was writing it, but we, it was written for us, right? The Bible was not written to us, but it was written for us. And what that means is that when we read the Bible, it is not right for us to assume that we are 
the people that the author is writing to, but what we can do is glean from those lessons and apply it to ourselves, right? So that's one thing to learn is that the Bible is written for us, not necessarily to us. And so when we look at this passage, we look down at the people of Israel uh, down in the plain, and we are rightly identifying ourselves in the camp if we're in the people of God today. And that helps us to see that when the first hearers were reading or were being told this story, they're getting this bigger picture, right? They're getting, they're getting to see how God is working in the world outside of the camp. So last week, Eric asked us this question of, what story are you in? Right? He asked us this question often, and I think for our benefit. And what I want to do today is kind of tweak that question and ask a slightly different one that I think will also benefit us, which is, whose story are you in? Right? Who's the person telling the story? For instance, <clears throat> Uh, Donald Miller is a New York Times bestseller and Wall Street Journal bestseller for his book called Building a Story Brand. In that book, uh, he's essentially advocating that uh, we are better communicated to when it's through the lens of a story rather than just information dumping. When it's in the, the narrative setting, we tend to learn better. And he has this quote at the beginning of his book that's kind of underlying his fundamental belief. And it's this. He says, your customer should be the hero of the story. That you are the hero of the story. And what this is saying is that there are cultural forces at work that are telling you and selling you this, uh, this statement that you are the hero of your own story. And though there is a right way for us to see that and see that we are each living our own lives and we each have a different story to tell, uh, we're not just one big blob, right? But what it does mean is that oftentimes we can truncate reality down to our own personal experience. And I think what the, that this passage is doing for us today is, is inviting us to step out of our personal experience and see the world through God's eyes and see it through his perspective. And so if, you're, uh, if you grew up in the church, then you may have actually been asked uh, the question of, what's your story? Or, and we may have responded with something like telling our testimony, telling how God came into our lives and, we, and, and he shaped and changed the way that we are telling our own story and how he came in and turned the sin in us into a blessing and he redeemed it for us through Christ and how we're trying to live faithful lives now. And I kind of want to ask uh, you to reconsider sharing it in this way because that's still a right way to see how God came into our lives, right? But we might also ask the question and answer it how we are going along with the story God is telling, how we saw the goodness he was doing in history, and we saw the goodness of Christ, and we saw that that was good, and we stepped into God's story, and we started following him. What might that look like? And how might that change how we live as disciples of Christ? That it's not God stepping into our life, and changing our story, which that is true, that does happen, but ultimately the bigger picture is that we are stepping into God's story, and we're going into, we're trying to be obedient to what he's doing in the world, not what we are trying to do in the world. We are not the hero of our story. God is the hero of our story. 
And for those who might be exploring Christianity today, uh, I think this passage also has a challenge for you. And I think it's a very similar one. It's challenging us, it's challenging you to step back from your perspective and to see that there is more to this world than what meets the eye. That there is more going on than what you could possibly ever know or perceive. That there's this infinite set of data points that only you get a small chunk to view in your lifetime. And that to make meaning out of that can only happen if we have the grand storyteller telling us what it means. And so the challenge for you is, what does it look like for you to step back and consider how is God inviting me into the story he's telling? And so if we're going to be good disciples of Christ, if we're we're trying to learn how to navigate the story, I think four questions can help us. One, what part of the story are we in? We've already asked who's the storyteller, so what part of the story are we in? What role do I play? What role do you play in the story? Are you the antagonist? Are you the protagonist? Are you the extra? Are you one of the main characters? What role are you playing? And a similar question that leads out of that is, what role does our community play? What role does the church play in that story? How are we interacting with God's grand narrative? And four, where is the story going? Knowing where the end of the story is can have can help us to see what direction we're supposed to walk and what God is doing in the world. So, we've seen that we're in a bigger story, and what makes for a good story is uh, a good evil villain, right? A good conflict. And if there is one problem that, uh, if there's one threat to God's narrative in this particular passage, it's this problem, the problem of Balak. That's our second point, is that there's evil in the story. So if we look back at our passage in verse 3, starting verse 3, Balak says this to Balaam, or it starts saying, And Moab was in great dread of the people, because there were many. And so Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. And so a few things are happening here. So again, we're trying to be good readers. So the Balak has been purposefully placed here at the end of the book of Numbers. It's supposed to show us that a couple of books later in the book of Exodus, uh, we're supposed to see Balak as this Pharaoh-like character. So in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh was the king of Egypt, and he was oppressing Israel, and he uh, refused to, and he was persistently refusing to go with God's plan for the Israelites, and was uh, essentially the main antagonist in the story. And so when we look at our passage today, we're supposed to kind of see Balak as another Pharaoh, just on the other side of the desert, on the other side of the wilderness. And we see this when uh, we look at the book of Exodus, and he says, uh, Behold, this is Pharaoh saying this, The people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. And we hear those same words in our passage. And so this is helping us to see that Balak is like another Pharaoh. He's another bad guy. 
he's a bad guy. He's the evil guy with his evil plan. And so what's Balak's evil plan? It's this. It's that he says to Balaam, come now, curse his people for me since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. And so villains have been the, a staple of storytelling for you know, millennia and years. Uh, and every Disney movie you've seen has had some really great villain that they write in. You know, you have, uh, you have Scar from Lion King, Zerg from Buzz Lightyear, Hans from Frozen, and a really good evil villain can make or break the movie. And in Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, you have the evil queen. And I think she's a really good evil villain. And the evil queen is really obsessed with herself, right? She has this mirror on the wall that she goes to every single day and asks, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? And the mirror always responds, you are the fairest of them all, evil queen. And, <laughs> yes. And, uh, and every day she keeps coming back. She keeps asking and kind of shows how secure she is about how she looks. But uh, she keeps coming back and she's, she's asking. And then one day the mirror says to her, probably gladly, you are not the fairest of them all, evil queen. Snow White is the fairest of them all now. And this sends the evil queen into a rage. She's, uh, she comes up with this plan to poison Snow White so that she can reclaim her spot as the fairest of them all. And what is, uh, what is driving her to such extreme lengths? Right? This is not just some fight-or-flight response of fear. Right? This is her premeditating and uh, persistently chasing after this evil plan that she has. What is driving her to such extreme lengths? It's fear. Right? What's underlying her envy of not being of Snow White? It's afra being afraid that she won't be good enough. That she won't be good enough. And so for us, what that shows us is that Balaam, the characters of Balaam and Balak in this narrative show us two distinct things. And one of those things is that there are actually evil forces in the world trying to oppose God's purposes. As we're trying to be disciples of Christ and we're trying to live in this world and navigate God's story, we have to be aware that there are forces opposing that story, and that has implications for people like us in the church who are part of God's story, who are going along with him. We have to know that those things are actively fighting against God's purposes. And secondly, uh, we have to see that Balak, again, is like Pharaoh. He was driven by fear. He was driven by dread of the people of Israel. Now, what this serves is, is a warning for, for all of us. This serves as a warning for those who are persistently fighting against God's purposes in the world. The way of Balak is the way of sin and rebellion in, in such a way that as you keep doing it over and over again, you God will naturally lend you over to your sin. And when we look at the story of Pharaoh, it doesn't turn out so well for Pharaoh. Right? This is, God does not take this lightly. And so for us, if we are actively fighting against God's purposes in the world, 
God does not take that lightly. And the, the warning is here to urge us into a relationship with God. It's not merely just a threat. This is an invitation to come into God's bigger story. And the way of Balaam is similar, but, but a little different. The way of Balaam is a person with one foot in each camp, right? He's trying to, he's trying to get the, the, the greed and the gold. He's trying to get Balak's possessions, but he's also trying to be right with God at the same time, but only so that God will be there for him so that he might be able to use God and get good things. So the way of Balaam is a way of, the way of Balaam is the way of greed and gain, selfish gain. And if we are using Christianity or religion to try to benefit us ultimately, then we are following the way of Balaam. And so this also serves us as a warning to not merely use our faith for our own benefit, but for the benefit of others. Right, Mohan's book is all about that, that we've been studying in our small groups, that spiritual formation is about the service of other people. And so it is, these two characters serves as warning for those who are sinners, who are driven by fear, to not follow the way of Balak, to be persistent in our sin, that leads us into handing us over to our sins, but also not to follow the way of Balaam, where we are lukewarm to our faith and we try to use Christianity or we try to use God for our own benefit and for our own upbringing. So, so far we've seen that, one, we are in a bigger story. That's God's story. Two, that there's evil in that story, and that there's a warning there. And three, there's a, lot, there's a little problem. We can't solve the problem in the story. God solves the problem. He turns curses into blessings. That's our last point. God turns curses into blessings. So let's look at Balak's request to Balaam back in verse 6. So you notice I may have, if you've been following along in a Bible, I intentionally stop right here. So picking it back up in verse 6, Balak says this to Balaam, For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Now here I want to pause and help you remember where we started in the sermon, right? We started with the, the idea of a light motif, this recurring theme that goes on throughout scripture. And if we're trying to be good readers here, we, we stop and we say, huh, those words sound really familiar. And if you were doing a Bible, like a yearly Bible reading this year, you may have heard this back in like January. Uh, and so we need to go back to Genesis 12 to hear where this theme picks up. So in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, God says, Now the Lord said to Abram, to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And here's, listen to this. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you hear the theme? The blessing and the cursing. So back in Genesis 12, God is promising to Abraham that his descendants will be a blessing to the nations, and those who curse his people will be cursed, and those who bless his people will be blessed. Now fast forward back to our passage in Numbers 22, many, many centuries and generations later, this theme pops back up. But who's saying these words? It's Balak. Why? Balak is saying these words to Balaam. 
And Balaam, or Balak wants Balaam to curse God's people and so that he can be blessed and benefit himself. Do you hear it now? This is a very significant theme that's coming up here. And the way it's being presented to us as readers is tipping us off to how this is actually going to resolve later in a few weeks when we get to the end of this pass when we get to the end of this three chunk narrative three chapter narrative we see how god is sovereignly at work subverting the forces of evil that are opposing him we see that by putting the words these words on balak's lips that God is actually, the reader is tipped off to see that God is actually at work fulfilling his promises. This is the, the leitmotif of God saving the world, right? Every time Indiana Jones comes into a scene, you know, we hear, bum, ba-dum, bum, bum, ba-dum, right? And that tips us off that, oh, here comes Indiana Jones, and he's going to save the day. So when we hear this language of blessing and cursing in the Bible, we are intentionally meant to think back to the promises of Abraham, and so when we hear it here, we have this hint, we have this foreshadowing of here comes God, he's doing something, He is up to something. He's doing something in such a way that, remember, we're outside the camp, we can't even see it. And so what this means is that this leitmotif, this theme, gets repeated over and over again through the Bible, through history, and is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Because, at least in Galatians 3.13, we hear uh, Paul write that Christ became a curse for us by taking on our sins and hanging on a tree, right? Christ became the curse. This theme is coming back up. And by dying and resurrecting from the dead, when he was resurrected from the dead, he became a blessing. Not just for Israel now, because Christ was the true Israel the blessing is now a free and open invitation for all. The blessing has been fulfilled. Remember what the point of the Abrahamic promise was, so that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Through Christ, through his resurrection, he tore the veil that separated God and man. And it's through him that people like you and me can come and join God's story and follow his way and reject the way of Balak, reject the way of Balaam. So, so what? what? What does this actually mean for us as uh, people who are seeking to be disciples of Christ? One, I think it means that you're in the greatest story ever told, right? This is bigger than anything you can imagine, it means that God is working in ways in the world that you will never see, and that that's a good thing. That's for your blessing. That's, for, uh, that's a good thing for you. It's good that we identify with Israel in this passage because it shows us that God is at work in such a sovereign way that even though there are forces of evil opposing us and opposing God's purposes, that he is still at work and he sovereignly undermines their efforts to take what they meant for evil and turns it into something good, to allude to jo- the Joseph story in Genesis 50, right? God turns something evil into something good. And two, it means that you can have hope, right? When the story is bigger than us, 
that's such a relief, right? It means it's not, we're not the hero uh, of God's grand story. We don't have to come and save the day. To me, I don't know about you, to me, that's such a relief because I tend to want to become the person that saves the day, but what that does is it humbles people like you and me to look to God and to cry to him and say, God, you are the hero of this story. My hope is in you. My hope is in Christ. So as we seek to be disciples of Christ, we have to remember we're in a bigger story. We have to remember that there's evil in that story and that those, uh, those forces are real. They do come into your life when you are following God's narrative. But three, that there is hope. Because, thank God, we're not the hero of the story, but Christ is. And so let us be daily reminded of hope that we have in Christ and look to God, who is the author and, and perfecter of not only our faith, but the author of the, our story, of God's story that we get to be a part of. Thanks. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that we thank you that we are not the hero of your story. We thank you that it was Christ that you brought in. It was you coming down to earth it was you sovereignly ordaining your will to bring the curses of this world and turn them into a blessing. Thank you that we have the hope of Christ. May we be invited today to see that what's in front of us is not all there is. And may we be invited to see that we have hope because you have done something in this world. You have done something through Christ. Help us to be more and more shaped and conformed into the likeness of Christ and help us to see how you're blessing this world through your people. Jesus, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.